Hello, sports fans, and welcome to another edition of Yesterday Sports on the Sports History Network. And make sure to check out sportshistorynetwork.com slash giveaways. I have two signed books I'm giving away. One is titled No Nonsense Old School Weight Training, and the other is Reliving 1970s Old School Football. Back in the ancient days of history, people that wanted to have answers would go to the mountain and seek out the wise man. But we're going to do that today on some Chicago football history as we go to the wise man of Joe Ziemba in his new book, Bears vs. Cardinals. Joe's coming up with some great insights and stories about the Bears and Cardinals coming up in just a moment. This is the Pigskin Daily History Dispatch, a podcast that covers the anniversaries of American football events throughout history on a day-to-day basis. Your host, Darren Hayes, is podcasting from America's North Shore to bring you the memories of the gridiron one day at a time. So as we come out of the tunnel of the Sports History Network, let's take the field and go no huddle through the portal of positive gridiron history with pigskindispatch.com. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. Hello, my football friends. This is Darren Hayes of pigskindispatch.com. Welcome once again to the Pigpen, your portal to positive football history. And we have a great interview session tonight. We're going to talk to our friend. It's an author of multiple books on football and especially Chicago area football. That's Joe Ziemba. And his latest book is out, Bears versus Cardinals, the NFL's oldest rivalry. Very interesting uh, title, very interesting topic, very interesting author. We'll bring him in right now. Joe Ziemba, welcome back to the the pig pen. Oh, Darren, thanks so much for having me back again. It's been a while. I see the pig pen has been remodeled. It looks nice and clean and really and ready and anxious to talk about the bears and the Cardinals. Hey, we kept your spot open at the trough here at the pig pen. So <laughs> you, it's, you're always welcome here. It's been much too long and that's, that's my fault. I need to have you on more, more Joe is always a good thing. And we appreciate that. Thanks so much for letting me babble on a few times. So it's, it's all good. It's all about the history of pro football. Well, you, it's probably uh, hard to make an appointment with you because I'm seeing all over social media and I live, you know, 800 miles away from you. And it's, uh, seems like you're booked on something almost every evening talking about, you know, the bears and the Cardinals and your wonderful book, you know, you're on a quite the tour of Laura. You know, people always say they're living the dream. And right now it is great because the book has come out and a a lot of libraries and different organizations have asked me to talk about the book. And I don't really promote the book. Obviously, I I like to market it. So that's part of it. But it gives me the opportunity to talk about the Bears and Cardinals. You meet so many interesting people. Uh, I gave a talk this week at a library and a an 89-year-old young lady came up and said she was a bear season ticket holder on the 50-yard line, and her cousin knew George Hallis, and she knew exactly what I was talking about when we go back to the early 50s in these talks. And even the fact with old photos where the referees were kind of dressed up with a suit and tie and a hat, and uh, she said, I remember those guys. So it was, it's kind of neat. You meet different types of people, and I really enjoy that as much as giving the talks. 
Well, you're, you're definitely hitting a great nerve with the, the public. I'm, I'm sure up in Chicago, they're, they're going ecstatic about it. You know, people, the old Cardinals fans are remembering it. Of course, the Bears fans, uh, new and old, are probably enjoying hearing this uh, you know, relishment of uh, history. And you have uh, quite a bit of history that's uh, somewhat forgotten that uh, a lot of people didn't know about. Um, maybe you could talk about that a little bit. Yeah, and the history of both teams is is quite unusual. Both teams had fires in their storage units, and I'm not sure exactly when, Darren, but I think it was in the 50s. And so a lot of the history was lost, which means that history that may have been written before was taken as being the truth. Now, we do have some documentation, for example, with the Bears. George Hellas wrote his autobiography and came out in the early 70s, I believe, or late 60s. And it first came out in the Chicago Tribune as a multi-daily series. But George was writing this stuff many decades after it occurred. And, and it's not a big deal. It certainly doesn't matter. But there's a few errors in there. And one of the, the bigger ones that I saw was, uh, I'm questioning whether George Hallis and the Decatur Staley's voluntarily left Decatur in 1921. Again, you say, who cares? But as you and I are historians, you kind of enjoy that stuff and that information. And uh, I think it's it's kind of interesting in the book what we're able to track down as to why I don't think George Hellas left voluntarily. We in Chicago are certainly glad that he did because the Bears are here right now. And there's something similar with the Cardinals. The Cardinals history just did not make sense when I did my last book a few centuries ago called When Football Was Football. Because I was looking up as much as I can, and I really kind of go deep in research as much as possible and found out that the dates that the Cardinals continue to publicize are inaccurate. And there's nothing wrong with that. Uh, who cares if we're off a little bit 125 years ago or whatever? But <laughs> it's been fun in this latest book on the rival. I was able to document where the the history was stretched a little bit and who did it. And when all that stuff comes together and you've got a pile of information, you want to make sense of it. I, I hope that readers will now make sense of the history of both teams that yeah, maybe some of that stuff isn't quite accurate that we've been led to believe. And so that includes the date when the Cardinals started, how the team got its name. Uh, there's a couple of old stories that certainly weren't true. One, for example, said in 1920 that the owner of the Cardinals challenged the Chicago Tigers for the right to represent Chicago. And whoever lost the game would hand over their franchise to the other team. And we found out there's absolutely no truth to that. But it made for a good story. And again, we try and provide the reasons why that was not accurate and what happened after that. So lots of fun. And as you mentioned, uh, people are, are getting into it. We have a lot of nice discussion at these meetings. Uh, again, last week, uh, a lady in the audience who, again, had been a season ticket holder uh, came up to me beforehand. And this talks about the rivalry, how tough it was back then. She said, I hope you're not talking about the Cardinals. I said, well, yeah, it's part of the book. So I have to do that. She said, well, I'm a Bears fan all the way through. And then we'll have uh, older Cardinals fans who remember and say, did Hellas kick them out of Chicago? And I'll say, well, he certainly helped. 
And part of that reason was George Hellas authorized a half million dollars to the Cardinals in 1960 to leave town, even though the real reason was the blackouts and the TV rights, which uh, happens when you have a, a city with two NFL teams at the same time, the only city that had that. So the Bears did have something to do with the Cardinals leaving the city of Chicago. You, you bring up a lot of different topics there that are like, I have interest peaks going all over the place. Mm-hmm. I'm sure the readers do too. Uh, but maybe let's start at the beginning because though I, we found out earlier, I don't read the acknowledgements in books very well, but I do like to read the preface of books. And you have a very interesting opening and sort of a, a personal opening uh, where you talk about a, a period in, in your life and a, a person in your life that uh, sort of helped this, propel this book. Exactly, Darren. And it, it was my dad who played uh, college football. He went to Mount Carmel High School in Chicago and then went to a little place called St. Benedict's in Kansas. And that time there was no real divisions. You either had big schools or small schools. St. Benedict's, which is now Benedictine in Atchison, uh, was considered a smaller school, although they played Creighton in New Mexico State and Wichita State. And he was named first team All-American. And after that, he apparently received a lot of letters from places uh, like George Ellis of the Bears, the Detroit Lions. There was a draft in place, and he did get drafted by the Cardinals in the 12th round, I think, of uh, the 1940 draft. But he never talked about his football experience. He was a coach, and he's actually inspired all of my three of my books um, because of his coaching and, and his experience. But I've always wanted to find out more of what happened. And ultimately, he got injured in training camp. I found a magazine where he made the final roster. I think it was 32 players at the time. But it would have been a simple arthroscopic surgery now. But then he figured, why go through the pain? And besides, Darren, he could make more money coaching high school football than he could as a professional football player in the National Football League back in the 40s. So here's my question, Darren. What do you think he his contract called for in terms of payment? Oh, let's see. We're talking, um, this would be the Cardinals. And in 1940, you said? Yes, yes. So pre-World War II, I'm going to say uh, 100 bucks a game. Oh, you're right there. The rookie contract called for $110 a game, but... They had to provide their own shoulder pads and cleats. So maybe oh, it did yeah. come down to 100. And <laughs> they didn't get paid if they missed a game because of injury. So uh, all the more reason for him to check out of the hospital and go become a high school coach. But yeah, right. great guess. Great guess. Oh, wow. The, the other thing you piqued the interest, you talked about these fires that both the Cardinals and the Bears had. You know, it was two separate fires, right? It wasn't they didn't keep all their records in the same place and there was a fire. Yeah, they have different. They had different headquarters, and so uh, someday it's one of those things we always say as researchers. I want to look into that and see if I can define exactly when the dates were for those. But uh, without a lot of the records, then we're going by hearsay or things that have been published through the years that are just taken as truth, and and more so for the cardinal side than the bears. Uh, we found out that a, a lot of this information started in the '40s or '50s about that game between the Cardinals and the Tigers, for example, and about how the team got its name. You know, one of the things that has always kind of bugged me was it said that Chris O'Brien, the owner of the Cardinals in 1899, when the team started, 
bought used jerseys from the University of Chicago and Amos Alonzo Stagg. And Stagg did not like the idea of professionalism. He caused a, a, a big brouhaha in the early 20s by syndicating a national letter talking about how evil professional football was. But I wanted to see for sure, and I was able to uh, see if the jerseys match. First of all, Chris O'Brien was 17 or 18 years old. He certainly didn't own the team, and Stagg was unlikely to sell jerseys. But I had a chance to go to the University of Chicago, which keeps extensive record of Coach Stagg's uh, all those financial dealings and his correspondence. I could not find anything, which doesn't mean much, but they did have photos. And I do have a photo of the Cardinals in 1900 when they're known as the Morgan Athletic Club. And the photos don't match, even though they're not in color. So that's the kind of uh, research that has helped me to understand that there might be little errors here and there as we move through history. Again, it doesn't affect the team today, but we're not changing history, but kind of correcting it or adjusting it a little bit. Yeah, I, I always thought that story was kind of odd, too, because, you know, the Chicago, of course, was the maroon. So I'm assuming they probably had a maroon colored jersey and, you know, to come up with a cardinal red out of that, out of the maroon. I, I just don't get that either. That doesn't make much sense either. <laughs> no, and that's why when the team started in 1901, it was called the Cardinal Social and Athletic Club, not named after a bird or a uniform and Chris O'Brien certainly didn't own the team, although he and his brother and one other gentleman started the first version of the Cardinals in 1899. But yeah, uh, Maroons does not match Cardinal red, at least in my opinion, Darren. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, now, uh, George Hallis is always an interesting subject. Uh, you know, I, I have sort of a, 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 I don't know if everybody else does, but sort of a, a love-hate uh, relationship. I look through him through history. You know, there's some things that he did were just you know, spectacular, both as him as an athlete and uh, some of the, th the great things that he did is, you know, starting the NFL and, you know, keeping Decatur and Chicago, th those teams going and you know, what he did for the game. But other things, you know, I, I sit there and I look at some of these uh, sort of sly little maneuvers he would make to put the bears in, in, uh, title contention, you know, with, you know, back, you know, there's probably at least three or four stories where the bears were in second place and he sort of tried to swindle or did swindle another team into playing an extra game to try to gain an advantage for his team, which you can't blame a guy for doing. It just seems a little bit uh, underhanded a little bit by today's standards. Yeah. And a good example would be Buffalo. I believe that was 1921 where the bears invited uh, Buffalo to come to Chicago, uh, supposedly for an exhibition game. And somehow the league counted the game, which the Bears won as a regular season game, even though there's two or three reasons why it shouldn't have been considered. But back then, there were no playoffs. The league champion was decided by a vote of the owners at the end of the season, in fact, early the next year. And so in the book, what I've tried to do to present all sides is, is have some of the authors who have written on that, like Jeff Miller has written extensively on Buffalo and get his opinion. And he was helpful with providing some articles from the Buffalo newspapers. And we see that along the way, even with Red Grange uh, joining the Bears in 1925, the day after he finished his college career. And the rule was that the pros weren't going to touch the college players and with the assumption that, yeah, he could sign them once their 
class graduated. Of course, Hellas took it as, well, Red Grange fin finished his college career on Saturday. On Sunday, he was with the Bears. Although Chris Willis, I think you've talked to a few times, mm -hmm. who wrote the exceptional uh, biography of Red Grange, tells us that, yeah, the maneuvers were going on well before that Saturday after Grange's final game. Then we also tell a story about Joseph Aldi in 1930, a rookie out of Notre Dame who committed a terrible, grievous crime. Can you guess what he did, Darren? You're a Notre Dame fan. No, but, but the name, the story sounds familiar, but I can't put my, my finger on what he, what he did. Well, what he did was terrible. He got married. And you couldn't oh, get married at Notre Dame <laughs> and, and remain in school. You know, they got kicked off the football team, but out of school. So Curly Lambeau was, was searching around for that to bring Joe Savaldi up to Green Bay. And Hallis was there as well. And supposedly there was some backroom talk that both would lay off Joe Savaldi. The same argument. His class didn't graduate. Hallis interpreted that as well. He played his final game and he can't play anymore anyway. So I'll sign him. And he signed him to a $4,000 contract, second only to Bronco Nagurski's $5,000 a year. And, of course, that brought up some hard feelings. The NFL did get involved, and Hallis and Savaldi, I guess, decided he was going to make more money as a professional wrestler. But, but Hallis, as you mentioned, the questions, there's two or three examples of where he may have stretched the truth a little bit. But uh, what, what an amazing man and how what a great coach and player he was too for many years till he retired in the late late 20s and all he did to keep football going as he said once he didn't know if he could take any money out of the team he and dutch sternemann who was his partner wanted to give each other a hundred dollars a game back in the early 20s if they had a hundred dollars left of course now the bears are worth 5.2 billion dollars so Alice did something right yeah, a good investment on, on his part. Not. Now, that's, that brings up another question, something that I've always had uh, question a little bit. You know, Mr. A.E. Staley was the original sponsor of the team with his, uh, his starch company, I believe he ran. And Hallis was a player and coach, I believe, in the, the very first year of the, of the APFA, 1920. Right. Am I correct so far? You are, yep. Okay, so when they became, uh, it was the, the next year, the year after, when Staley sort of washed his hands of the team, he gave the team in $5,000 to, to Hallis. Is that accurate? Yeah, that is correct. And that was midway through 1921. Hallis had toyed with playing games in Chicago in 1920. And then in 1921, others were scheduled to draw a bigger crowd. From my recollection, the home games in Decatur, Illinois, could only seat about 1,500 people. And so for Staley, this was a great investment if you look at it as a pure marketing endeavor to where his team was mentioned in newspapers all over the country as, as the league started to get more publicity. But I think he was drowning and lost in expenses with sponsoring teams. He had baseball team that traveled all over and, of course, football and the players worked at the Staley company. Hallis worked out a deal with Mr. Staley where the football team could practice a couple hours a day on company time. So it was a great deal for them. But I think in that letter in 1921, way at the bottom of it, it says, and please be understood, as he's saying to Hallis, 
Uh, once you leave Decatur, don't come back is essentially what Mr. Staley said. So in the book, I've kind of worked on that, found some other quotes. And as you might see, as you read through, and I don't think George Hallis left Decatur voluntarily. In fact, I'm, I'm pretty certain of it and uh, tried to lay out the reasons and the proof why that might have happened. But yeah, it was a, a great deal for a while. And then unfortunately, the Staley's dropped uh, in January of 22, I believe, all their sports. And a lot of the townspeople and, of course, some of the employees who were working or playing on those teams uh, were quite upset. And a cartoon appeared, which is in the book as well, that showed the different products produced by the Staley Company. And they were kind of pushed aside because Mother Staley was holding a football, the new baby, and giving it preference over the other children from the company. <laughs> now, why do you think that he, that Mr. Staley gave you know, given the teams one thing, that's, I mean, that's probably a decent expense right there. Maybe it was just get rid of him having to spend money, but why give Hallis, you know, the sum of $5,000, which was pretty good money back, uh, yeah. you know, in the early you know, 20th century. Absolutely. Yeah. 5,000 was a lot of money and, and he got Hallis through the season, but I think that was to really encourage Hallis to take the team and they defined it as being advertising money because the team would be known as the Chicago Staley's, even though they completed the 1921 season in Chicago, they kept the name Staley's. It wasn't until 1922 that the Chicago bears were incorporated, which was a whole different story um, through the fiasco of Hellas trying to incorporate the team or even having a franchise in the league, which the NFL finally recognized him for. But yeah, the $5,000 I think was to really encourage George Hellas and the football team to go away and not come back. Ah, okay. So it's not only naming rights, but yeah, get, get out of Dodge, go to Chicago or go, yeah. go elsewhere anyway. Okay. Interesting. <laughs> well, let's th take a break. I mean, that's, that's some great news. That's some great uh, things in the book. Let's take the opportunity to uh, once again, say the name of your book and, and where folks can get it, Joe. Yeah. The name of the book is bears versus Cardinals, the NFL's oldest rivalry. It's uh, from McFarland. You can order directly from the publisher or the usual online sources like Amazon, Barnes and Noble, Target are all carrying the book. So it's um, pretty easy to get online. Okay. Now you, you have it called bears versus Cardinals. So obviously they they played some games against each other and there was a, a rivalry I'm assuming when they both played in the same town, maybe yeah. you could hit some of the highlights of, of some of the big games and, uh, rivalry type things that, that happen between these two franchises. Yeah. I tried to go back because every time you, I do research and I'd see a bears Cardinals game, it still seemed to end up in a fight or fight among the stands in the stands or fight on the field or everybody combined and had a good time getting into a fight. <laughs> so I wanted to find out where the rivalry started. And actually it centers around Paddy Driscoll, P-A-D-D-Y, who was a halfback out of uh, Northwestern actually played outfield one season for the Chicago Cubs. And of course that he was still in college. He lost his college eligibility and he played in the, on uh, the great lakes uh, Naval station team that won the 1919 Rose bowl. And he and George Ellis later played for the Hammond pros in 1919. So the reason I'm telling you this is that Hallis and, and Driscoll had kind of a nice relationship as players, uh, Driscoll functioned as a quarterback. Hallis is the end. Hallis was the MVP of the 1919 Rose Bowl. But when the Pro League started in 1920, there was great excitement 
when Hallis was recruiting all these players for the Staley's because he signed the legendary Paddy Driscoll. And that was great news, a big name coming to Decatur. And then quietly about a week later, the newspapers reported Paddy Driscoll signed with the Chicago Cardinals, then known as the Racine Cardinals. So Hallis may have been a little upset with the Cardinals, but his pursuit of Driscoll never stopped. In the early part of 1922, we learn from newspaper, from paperwork that I found with the state of Illinois that Hallis not only recruited Driscoll to play for him, but made him an owner with Hallis and Dutch Sterneman of the newly incorporated Chicago Bears. Of course, Chris O'Brien, who by then was the manager of the Cardinals, went nuts and went to the league because one of the reasons for starting the NFL was to prohibit or eliminate player jumping from team to team. And Hallis was given a slap on the wrist and told that, no, you can't touch Paddy Driscoll. He's the property of the Cardinals, which he was. And at the time, the highest paid player in the league at $300 a game, when some of the players were still getting $25 or even $10 uh, at the time. So the story didn't end there because in November, Thanksgiving Day in 1922, I think you and I have talked about this before, Bears and the Cardinals played, and Hallis and Joey Sterneman, the brother of Dutch Sterneman, not only tackled Driscoll, but picked him up and head slammed him into the ground. And that led to quite a riot on the field. Uh, fans got involved. The police got involved. The story appeared in the newspapers about George Hallis being knocked down and a fan was straddling him with a pistol pushed up against George Hallis's head. And so it just seemed like every time the teams played, there'd be some kind of fiasco. In fact, it was rare. Uh, and the other thing about the rivalry, and this is, uh, we talked about Chris O'Brien going nuts. Uh, I go nuts when I watch television, when the Bears and the Packers play. And it said the NFL's oldest rivalry. And that happened again uh, most recently. But um, it was the Bears and the Cardinals when the Bears were the Staley's and the Cardinals were still the Racine Cardinals played the year before the Packers even entered the league. But uh, that's not the reason I wrote the book. I just found the stories on both sides. So fascinating that it went from a competition. It was mostly the players didn't like each other. You can even find Ernie Nevers talking about uh, in 1929, scoring 40 points against the Bears, which is still an NFL record for one game, and why he did it. And you go into the 50s with Ed Sprinkle, the Bears, and Charlie Trippy taking turns knocking each other out on the field. Uh, <laughs> fans jumping in, I think it was 1957 or 58, jumping on the field to join into a fight. And, and, and even when the Cardinals at the end there in Chicago, they moved to March of 1960. But at the end of 58, they wanted to play at Dyke Stadium, Northwestern University, and Hallis invoked an old, old agreement that absolutely no one in Chicago had heard of called the Madison Street Agreement. And that simply stated the Cardinals could not play north of Madison Street, which ran east-west in Chicago, and the Bears could not play south. And with this agreement, um, Burt Bell, who was a commissioner at the time, he ruled that now They'd have to support the Bears. The Cardinals could not move to Northwestern. And some great help on that one as well, because Upton Bell, uh, the son of Burt Bell, was just very gracious with his time and gave me some insight. And uh, the Pro Football Hall of Fame had the minutes from the meeting. 
just again, when the rivalry started right then, 1920 or so, and went to when the Cardinals left. So there's plenty of activity sandwiched in between. That's tremendous. You said the, the Cardinals left 1959. Is that what you said? Uh, 1960, March 19, of 60. Yeah. 1960. Okay. And that was, you said to Hallis, uh, I think you just said at the beginning of this conversation that Hallis gave money to them to encourage them to leave. Yes. And it's been in the newspapers that yeah, there are a couple of things they were concerned about. One was that new American football league getting involved in Chicago or stealing the Cardinals and moving them somewhere possibly St. Louis Cardinals were not making money. That's pretty much accepted. And so uh, at least the newspapers at the time said, and more than one resource said that George Ellis gave the Cardinals $500,000 to assist them with moving expenses. And that gave him the rights to all the television showings in Chicago games were blacked out. If one team was playing at home and the other was away uh, a goofy rule, but it, it lasted for years and years. And that was primarily why the Cardinals left town. Although the Hallis financial incentive certainly helped them. Yeah. That's, that, I mean, 1960, mm-hmm. half a million dollars is a, a good chunk of change. Yeah. Well, that's probably very encouraging for a franchise to move. You know, it's uh, peanuts uh, today. They've, that's probably what they pay the, the guy that the launders the shirts nowadays yeah, in the NFL. Right. But, <laughs> but uh, yeah, very interesting. So, uh, Joe, um, you know, this is a, uh, tremendous that you were able to come on here and talk about this. And I'm so glad that you were able to write this book and record this because your research is impeccable and your storytelling is uh, everybody loves it. Uh, (laughs) Make sure folks listen to Joe's uh, podcast. He's on uh, a couple times a month. You you have a podcast. Yes, right. Yeah. Yeah. Why don't you tell us a little bit about the podcast? Well, the podcast is called when football was football. And what we talk about is any kind of old football in Chicago. It's the Bears and the Cardinals, but we've talked about a high school a couple of times and maybe a a couple of college things. And some of the individuals you may not hear about. Uh, We've talked about Shorty Ray a couple of weeks ago, who really revised the way officiating has done the National Football League. Um, This week's episode talks about Jack Glenn, which is one of the resources I had for this game. He was the 19-year-old general manager of the Cardinals back in in 1919. Uh, A great story. His family had kept his documents for over 100 years. In fact, his niece, I believe it would be, is a missionary in Bolivia, a nun. And and she was the one who uncovered these documents after all these years. You know, and speaking of documents, before we go, uh, Darren, I want to mention my personal thanks to John Kendall and the Pro Football Hall of Fame. A lot of what we talk about is based on the Dutch Sternemann papers. And the Sternemann papers, Sternemann was the partner of George Ellis in the 1920s until the early 30s. And the family kept all the financial records of the bears at that time. That's what Sternemann did. So we know what the salaries were. And I talked earlier about uh, Bronco Nagurski and Joseph Aldi, the contracts for different games, even how much a mechanic in the North side of Chicago, who was paid $4 a game and plus a pass to go scout for the bears back then. And so I was able to use a ton of stuff. Thanks again to John Kendall and the pro football hall of fame for which is probably, in my opinion, the greatest collection they have there is the Sternemann Papers. Wow. That's, now, you, you get to actually go into the, the Hall of Fame and use the research facility when, you, when you're uh, doing research for your book, correct? 
Yes, yes. And the uh, Hall of Fame has always been very receptive. I don't know why they let me in, but they do. And <laughs> you know, when the tournament papers came out for a couple of years, uh, they were kind of off base. And, and the reason why was the Hall of Fame was uh, categorizing everything. And so now they've all been put in boxes. There's a nice index of what is where and made it really easy. And I was able to make copies of the documents that were specific to my research. So John Kendall's been there every step of the way, uh, the archivist at the Hall of Fame. And I, I just can't thank him enough. And a lot of other, other people helped as well. Chris Willis from NFL Films. You've always been encouraging. I mentioned Jeff Miller, Upton Bell, John Steffenhagen, who's an expert on the Rochester Jeffersons. Uh, a lot of great folks that have been able to help out with this research. So I thank them publicly. <laughs> Yeah. Now, I guess maybe we'll put, you're mentioning all those names. Uh, maybe we should put a little bit of a plug in uh, the, for the PFRA, the Professional yeah. uh, Football Research Association. Uh, we are going to be having a meeting in 2023 in Pittsburgh where pro football started. Uh, George Bazika and, and the gang is uh, organizing this uh, great venture to take that down there. So if folks, if you're interested in, in real professional football history and uh, some, some great things, we had a, a big meeting last year in Canton at the hall of fame and some places around our Massillon and uh, the city of Canton. Uh, but you know, this Pittsburgh trip is, seems to be very intriguing as well and very full of uh, football history going back in you know, Latrobe athletic clubs and things like that. Uh, so I know they have some great guests lined up and some great events. Uh, if you're interested in that, you can uh, you know, contact us here at pigskin dispatch, which is pigskin dispatch at gmail.com or go to the PFRA website and I believe it's professionalfootballresearchers.org. Uh, I think I might have that off, but it's something like that. <laughs> but uh, yeah, we, we'd like to see you. And you will meet folks. Uh, usually you know, Joe's there. I'm there. Uh, you know, uh, he talked about Jeff Miller and uh, some possibly Chris Willis might be there. there. There's a lot of people that usually show up to that that are all football historians and experts in the field. And it's just some great camaraderie. And you get to rub elbows with some really knowledgeable people about football. Yeah, it is a great time. And again, all you got to do is uh, for me, because I can't remember all the, the letters as I go PFRA and it usually shows up and, and the website is open to non-members as well. So if you want to look around there, there is a member section that you have to be a member, obviously, to take a look at. But uh, we're expecting a great, great meeting next year. And, and George, as you mentioned, Darren, always does a wonderful job in putting it together. And he's also the mastermind behind the book series that the PFRA, PFRA is, has been putting out the last few years. Yeah, absolutely. Great, great. A lot of great resources. And when it's saying a membership fee, it's very inexpensive. I believe it's like $35, $40 yeah. a year. And uh, I think the whole weekend, the three-day weekend is like $75 if you're a member next next summer. So very affordable. Uh, you know, of course, your room and meals are, are separate. I think they do include one or two meals in there too, yes. $75, but uh, well worth the money. And especially the history you get to, to see and, and experience and learn about is just phenomenal. Yeah, it's uh, something I've, I've uh, always enjoyed attending. And it's almost like Disneyland for football people who love their history. Uh, every time you turn around and the breaks in the hallway and being able to talk to folks who uh, just have that passion and that love of pro football history, it's, it's really exceptional. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Joe, I uh, really appreciate you coming on here. Why don't we give the folks one more time the name of your book and where they can get it 
And, uh, and if you want to share any social media that you have. Oh, thanks so much, Darren. Yeah. The book is called bears versus Cardinals. The NFL's oldest rivalry uh, available from McFarland books or Amazon probably be the two easiest places. Uh, also have a Twitter account, which is called at cards, Chicago and a Facebook account of Chicago cards. If you want to just look up Chicago cards, there's over 12,000 people now who follow the Chicago Cardinals Facebook. And we, again, take great pleasure in uncovering those types of stories that you may not see very often. And so uh, we'd invite you to join us and continue our investigation, our history, and our enjoyment of old-time professional football. Well, Joe Ziemba, uh, you know, historian, podcaster, author, we thank you once again for, for sharing the, your great knowledge and your stories and your time with us again tonight. And thank you so much, Darren, and all you're doing to protect and preserve the history of football, in fact, and your, your podcasts are amazing. I don't know how you do it, but congratulations. Keep up the good work, and thank you so much for having me here again. Sure. I think people call it an illness. At least that's what my <laughs> wife calls it. But. <laughs> Thanks, Joe. Thank you. We're taking a peek over at the chains and the down marker. It's fourth and long. We're going to have to punt the ball and get on out of here, but we'll have another series tomorrow for your football history headlines, so be sure to tune in. We invite you to check out our website, pigskindispatch.com, not only to see the daily football history, but to experience positive football with our many articles on the good people of the game, as well as our own football comic strip, Cleat Marks Comics. Pigskindispatch.com is also on social media outlets, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and don't forget the Pigskin Dispatch YouTube channel to get all of your positive football news and history. Special thanks to the talents of Mike and Gene Monroe, as well as Jason Neff for letting us use their music during our podcast. Pigskindispatch.com is a proud affiliate of the Sports History Network, the headquarters of sports yesteryear. Hey there, football fans. This is Ross, the host of the Pigskin Tales podcast. I just need a few moments of your time to talk about the host of the Pigskin Dispatch podcast, Darren Hayes. He's expanded the pig pen to search out information on the history of all team sports. It's a quest to find out about the competitors, teams, and places chronicled throughout athletic history through the uniforms and gear the participants used and wore. And he is taking you, the listener, with him on this educational journey to preserve sports history on the Sports Jersey Dispatch, found here on the Sports History Network. His newest podcast, called Jersey Dispatch, is all based on the jerseys that all the greats used to wear. You can find Darren Hayes and the Pigskin Dispatch podcast as well as Jersey Dispatch on your favorite podcast provider multiple times each week. So remember that, Darren Hayes, the host of the Pigskin Dispatch and Jersey Dispatch podcasts. It's found right here on the Sports History Network.